other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You might remember my prior conversation with David O. Stewart. He's a historian, a best-selling author. He's written a great deal about history and historical novels. We spoke at length about George Washington, and I learned a great deal about George Washington from talking with him. And based on a lot of the feedback that I got from many of you, I think you did as well. Well, now there's a new book out, and it takes place uh, six or seven decades after George Washington passed away. And it has to do with the Civil War. But unlike the historical book that we spoke with David about the last time he was here, this is actually a historical novel. But it deals with an aspect of history that I have to confess I was almost totally ignorant of and was a little annoyed at myself for never having been curious enough to research. Well, the good news is if you read The Burning Land by David O. Stewart, your curiosity will at least be partially satiated. Want to welcome back to the program, best-selling author David O. Stewart. David, it's great to talk with you again. Thanks for joining me on the radio. It's my great pleasure, Frank. David, so first, before we get into The Burning Land and some of the issues that you deal with in the book, tell me about how what, what makes you choose to tackle a topic, an era, from the perspective of either straight history or historical fiction? What makes you decide, I'm either going to write this as a historian would or as a novelist would? How do you pick? It's mostly driven by how much I can find out about the people I want to write about. If I can really understand them and get a lot of documented information about who they were, what they did, then I'll I'll do it as just history. But a lot of times you can't. So much of history is silence. And then I'll try to figure out if I have enough to do a, do a novel in, where I'll respect what I know. I, I never change facts that we know. But there's so much you can fill in and, and, and flesh out a story and, I think, do it faithfully. So that's, that's how I, I, I make the call. All right. You deal with a, an issue that is very prevalent and affecting a lot of people today, but something that hasn't necessarily been talked about all that much in the context of the Civil War, and that's uh, the issue of PTSD. So there was post-traumatic stress disorder during the Civil War? Uh, yeah, lots. Um, and the thing is, we only got a vocabulary to to talk about these issues in the 20th century, it, it started out as, uh, uh, you know, the, in World War One, it was uh, uh, pe- people uh, driven mad by the shelling in the trenches, and then it was battle fatigue in World War Two, and now we call it PTSD. But the phenomenon's the same, which is you put a person in incredible stress for their lives, and ask them to kill other human beings, which is not a natural thing to do. And it changes them, and it, it fundamentally rocks them. And people deal with it differently. People have different experiences in war, but war is horrible. And that is something that people have to process, and they process it in odd ways. There were a lot of guys who came out of the Civil War, and 
huge percentage of the population fought in the Civil War. It was, uh, you know, 10 percent of the total population was in uniform. A lot of them came out damaged psychically and ended up in uh, killing themselves or in insane asylums and or they became hobos. That was that's when we first got the word hobo. It came from homeward bound. So that was just something people saw and didn't understand and didn't have a vocabulary to, to describe it. But now historians are going back and going through what medical records there are and seeing, yeah, that really is what was going on. You know, these people were called cowards. They were called malingerers. But they were really just just damaged. If people just tuning in, we're talking with David O. Stewart. His newest book is The Burning Land. Why is it difficult for us to know exactly how prevalent PTSD was in the 1860s? We only have the information that the doctors wrote down and in the medical records. And actually, for, <clears throat> for the Confederate cause, we don't have very good medical records. They just didn't keep them because they had fewer resources. Um, and if the doctor would, you know, he'd certainly notice if you, he amputated a leg or an arm, uh, if you've been wounded in a specific way, they were not focused on psychic injuries they didn't have time to focus on psychic injuries, and it wasn't something that the culture at the time really paid much attention to. If you were rattled by war, it just meant you were weak, and that was the view. And, you know, we don't view it that way anymore, but that means you have to sort of glean the information from the anecdotes, the specific instances we can find. And yes, as I was saying before, you know, people who, and they didn't even keep track of suicides really, but you know, people, when veterans got checked into the insane asylums, that was a pretty good sign that there was something going on. And then you can go back to their uh, service record. It's a very painstaking process. And there are some scholars who've been working hard at it. We'll never fix it, but, you know, if you go back to the Iliad in the time of the ancient Greeks, they knew that people in combat come out changed. They're different. And it's always been the case. So that's just something we have now sort of allowed to we're allowed to talk about in the open. It's not a sign of uh, weakness. Although, to be honest, a lot of soldiers feel shame about it. Yeah, no, um, and and that's that that's a real problem for them. What are some of the things you alluded to? How in World War One, if there was a, a psychological condition that uh, a serviceman was dealing with, they would call it being shell shocked. What were some of the terms for what we now know as PTSD that doctors or even family members of servicemen may have used at the time of the Civil War? There was a the term called nostalgia, which, you know, to us sort of sounds like a Hollywood movie. You know, it's a nostalgic romp. Right. But back then, they, it was their word for depression. Um, they meant it. This is a person who was just totally sad and doesn't interact with people. Um, there was a, a doctor in Philadelphia observed 
uh, a lot of his patients who were veterans uh, had the symptoms that we would today call a panic attack. Mm. And their heartbeat would just go crazy for 30 minutes, for 60 minutes. And, And they would be just terribly agitated. And, 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 you know, they're unable to focus on anything. And, you know, they, he called it irritable heart. What he noticed was the heart was pumping too fast. So he noticed the symptom. He didn't spend a lot of time breaking through that to what was really going on with the patient. And, you know, the patient didn't understand it particularly and didn't want to talk about it. You know, and that's something we still see. A lot of veterans who've been in bad situations, don't like to talk about it. Mm. It's it's painful. And that means we under-record the, the problem. Still to this day, you think? Sure. Yeah. Sure. And, and when was it that we that there was something called post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic stress syndrome? When in American history did that become something that at least people were aware existed and were in were prepared to diagnose? It really comes out of the Vietnam era when we have a fully developed sort of psychiatric profession. You know, psychiatry is both science and art, so it, it develops in, you know, in, in jumps, not in a smooth fashion. But they they did begin to understand that it was its own breed. They, we now understand, frankly, that the symptoms of PTSD, the experience of it, doesn't require war. You know, child abuse, you know, abusive childhood or, you know, an abusive relationship can create. PTSD-like symptoms. Family members of people with PTSD can end up with PTSD sim- symptoms. It's just the the psyche's response to powerful stress. And, you know, we all have to accommodate it in our lives in different ways. And, uh, you know, it's just some types of stress are so overpowering. When you're out, I, I read a incredible description of, of by a Vietnam veteran about going out in the jungle on his first patrol and he heard a noise and he thought, is that an animal? And then he thought, if that's an enemy, I'm dead now. And that moment, he said, my mind changed. And I've spent 50 years trying to change it back. And that's what we have to understand war does. Mm. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. I see. Mm. If people just tuning in, we're talking with David O. Stewart, author of The Burning Land, uh, which deals with a character by the name of uh, Henry Overstreet. It's the second book in the Overstreet saga. David, if people didn't read the first Overstreet book, are they going to be lost here or are they going to be able to follow the story pretty easily? That's a great question. No, they're standalone stories. I, this jumps. 60 years or 70 years from the one before. So uh, none of the characters are the same. It's just descendants of the same family. 
The decision to set this, what came first? The decision to set this book at, in the time of the Civil War or to deal with the issue of PTSD? Or was it a decision that you made sort of simultaneously? Well, I came to the story because of, you know, stories my mother told me about an ancestor who served in the Civil War. Um, and most of what she told me turned out not to be true. <laughs> but um, she was right that he served. And uh, he served quite honorably and in terrible circumstances. And I got his uh, uh, military records and his pension records, and I understood a little about his family, but it wasn't enough to write a, a book about him. But it was enough to understand the situation and what he was coping with and then his life after the war. The book goes through about a third of it is after the war because that's when he's he's changed. He's 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 not become a bad man, but he's become a different man. And it's really hard on his family and it's really hard on his wife. And that for me was kind of the core of the human story. I mean, the, the fighting and the, the battles, those are important, and I, I do those, but what I care about is the people. And it, I just found it an incredibly moving story to try to capture. You uh, wrote a terrific article in American Heritage, uh, headline, Did Johnny Come Marching Home with PTSD? And you deal with a West Point graduate uh, who became a Civil War general by the name of James Longstreet. Uh, tell folks about James Longstreet. Is that the is that the relative that you're talking about here? No, no. My, my ancestor was a sergeant, and then he, you know, he was just a soldier, and uh uh, he served honorably and he got terribly wounded. But Longstreet was, you know, one of the maybe five most important Confederate generals. He was Robert E. Lee's right-hand man. Uh, and in the Battle of the Wilderness, which was a miserable battle, he was wounded terribly. He was shot through the shoulder and the bullet came out through his throat. Um, and he survived, um, which was amazing. But it took him five months to recuperate, and there's this amazing passage written by a woman who cared for him saying, you know, he just cries for no reason. And he says, I don't know what there is about a bullet in the shoulder that would make a man a baby. And it's got all the classic elements of PTSD, which is um, uncontrolled emotions. He couldn't control himself. He just started crying, and he felt shame. He, he was ashamed that he was behaving this way. Um, he actually went back to war, and he served the last six months of, of the war at Lee's right hand again. And he lived a long time after that. He was terribly damaged. He could never use his voice very well. He could only speak in a whisper. He lost the use of one arm. But he was a guy who was able to hold it together to get it back. Mm. You know, everybody reacts differently to these things, but he, he really showed some of the classic symptoms. And I thought that was so impressive that, you know, he he wouldn't have ever said, you know, he'd suffered from some, some psychological injury. But we can look back and say, boy, you sure did. And uh, I think that I, w I was hoping that would take some of the curse off of it. You know, if a great soldier like James Longstreet can have this problem 
Anybody could. Mm. Mm. Uh, so tell me about uh, Corporal Henry Overstreet. He's the protagonist in your book. Who I know that he's from from Maine. Uh, who, who is he? He's a carpenter. Um, he's a young guy, um, and he gets uh, swept up in some of the enthusiasm uh, for the war, the war to save the Union, uh, the war to free the slaves. Uh, he, he he doesn't go in the first wave. He doesn't. Uh, uh, volunteer until 1862, and uh, it was such a tough war. We don't think of it. We, I think we don't appreciate it. You know, our guys today serve in hard situations, and they are brave and deal with terrible things. But you know, we we try to get them warm beds at night, and we try to you know get them in touch with their families. Mm. These guys were sleeping out intense for two years and you know getting a letter from home four or five times a year the situation their food was terrible um they were they had terrible uh uh casualty rates one in five of the soldiers who served in the civil war died we have n- nothing like that today. Right, right. With a much smaller so, population, it's uh, incredible the amount of uh, of carnage uh, that there was, and uh, the physical injuries alone uh, of folks that did survive, coupled with the issues of what we now know as PTSD. It's just staggering, absolutely staggering. So uh, Henry Overstreet is based at least in part on one of your ancestors. Yes, yes, and and, and you know, and and his whole. His home situation, too. The um, the character of Henry Overstreet is from the main infantry. Somebody else that uh, a lot of people have forgotten ever existed was a pretty important historical figure in the 1860s. And that's the first vice president of Abraham Lincoln, Hannibal Hamlin, who also happened to be from Maine. We don't at least I don't hear much about Hannibal Hamlin these days. What do we know about Hannibal Hamlin? What kind of a person was he? What kind of a vice president was he? And what did he do after Lincoln bounced him from the ticket for his second term? Uh, Hamlin was a firm abolitionist, uh, and he uh, was not someone who knew Lincoln. He was chosen simply because he was a senator from Maine, from New England, a good abolitionist who would uh, get Lincoln the support of that wing of the party. Um, He was respected, but he was not really a leading figure even. So Lincoln had the freedom not to pay any attention to him, and he didn't. Uh, you know, and that was a tradition in the 19th century. You mm. just ignored your vice president. And, you know, they w- would sit over as presiding officer of the Senate, and that's all they did all day. So when Lincoln decided to dump him for the, when he ran for his second term in 1864, it was to bring in Andrew Johnson, who was then uh, governor of Tennessee, to appeal to what we would call crossover voters. Um, He was trying to appeal to non-abolitionists because he'd already locked up the abolition vote. Now he wanted to get some other people. And, you know, that had a tremendous uh, uh, impact on the future of the country because when Lincoln is assassinated, we don't get this 
upright New Englander Hannibal Hamlin as president. Instead, we get Andrew Johnson, who was a slave owner who thought slavery was fine. Uh, it was a very different uh, transition from the Civil War. And then what did he do afterwards? Hamlin? Hamlin, yeah. Yeah, no, you, you asked that. Um, he became, uh, he, he got a political sinecure. Uh, he became a uh, collector of the Port of Boston, uh, which was a job, if you were corrupt, which Hamlin wasn't, it was a job you could make a lot of money at taking bribes. Um, <laughs> and in the era, a lot of collectors did, uh, but I, I don't mean to suggest Hamlin did. It was a powerful job politically because you had a lot of, you controlled a lot of jobs. Uh, but it was not a job where he could make any difference in the war effort or in the Reconstruction afterwards. Um, he really just sort of drifted away. One of the decisions that Henry Overstreet and his girl Kate uh, try to make after the war is over, it's whether to go west at that time. And in the spirit of manifest destiny and westward expansion, a lot of people were looking to the western frontier as a land of new opportunity and to forge a new identity or to go uh, back home to Maine. Is that really a, a, a sort of a crossroads, a decision that a lot lot of Civil War veterans found themselves needing to make, whether to go back home to their old life or to take their chances out west? Yeah, very much. Um, first of all, you know, people didn't travel very far from home in that era until the war started, and suddenly they're being uprooted and sent hundreds of miles away to fight. And they see the rest of the country, and they realize, oh, my goodness, there's all these other places, and they're not so bad. And, and you know, we're, we're just building the railroads, so you can actually get there. Um, and so with that extra mobility, and, and we've sort of severed their ties with home by sending them away for two or three right. years. And in particular, you know, the northern guys, many went out west, but it was even more pronounced for the southerners who served. Because in many instances, they came home and, you know, the farm was ruined. You know, if they were on Sherman's route when he marched to the sea, he burned everything. Um, and it made it pretty attractive to go off and start somewhere new. So that that very much supported the the move to the West was the sort of reaction uh, from the war. While I have you here, I can't uh, can't avoid asking you about this. We've seen over the last decade, but especially over the course of the last three or four years, a movement to take down any sort of Confederate memorial, Confederate statue, Confederate name all over the country. Here in in where I live in New York, there were uh, items even named for Robert E. Lee, but that's certainly true in Washington, D.C., in Virginia, and south of the Mason-Dixon line. There seems to be two schools of thought about this. There are the folks that say, look, uh, the lost cause was about slavery. That was the genesis of the Confederacy in the These people shouldn't be celebrated. And then there are folks that say uh, a lot of these monuments that are being taken down are monuments to the reconciliation of the country and to uh, a lot of brave people that fought for a cause that they now know that we now know is wrong. As a historian and as somebody that's uh, looked into this, I'm sure. Where do you come down on this, David? I think we need to look at when did those places get named? When did those markers go up? Because they didn't go uh, get installed and they, they didn't get renamed after the war. You know, for 30 years after the war, it was a mark of shame. 
that you had been a traitor, that you had raised a gun against your government. And it was only two or three generations later. And to be honest, when they're tr- the people in the South and some in the North are trying to reinforce uh, segregation, uh, that we begin to get this revival of a need to celebrate these people. I don't mean to be to, to describe the, the Confederate leaders as monsters. They thought they were doing the right thing. I have been studying about George Patton, and he, he, he was a very interesting guy who was actually, his family was all Southerners. And, and he said, you know, we know in every war both sides think they're right, and at least half of them have to be wrong. <laughs> um, so, you know, they were doing what they saw as right. It's hard for us today, I think, to see it as right, um, to be in favor of slavery, to be in favor of dividing the Union, and particularly for soldiers' oath to defend the country, to defend the government, and then violate their oath. I think that's something we shouldn't celebrate. David, we're going to have to end it there. I want to encourage everybody to uh, check out the book. It's called The Burning Land. They can get it at uh, davidostewart.com or on Amazon or most places where books are sold. Good luck with the book, David. David, thanks for taking the time. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.